Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Three Identical Strangers, the science behind the story. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. In this podcast series, we explore the scientific and ethical dilemmas from the award-winning CNN film, Three Identical Strangers. The film is based on a scientific experiment that was, at the very least, morally questionable. Frankly, watching certain parts of this film made me feel uncomfortable. In this episode, we're going to go back into the not-so-distant past to talk about some scientific experiments and medical practices that are disturbing. I should point out that it's 2019 now. Ethical standards have changed. But we should never be afraid to look back and continue to learn from the lessons of history. So in that vein, joining me now is Dr. Baron Lerner, the director of the bioethics curriculum at the NYU Langone Medical Center. He's also the author of the book, The Good Doctor, which studies how medical ethics change from generation to generation. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Your father was a doctor, and your book explores how these ethics have changed. Um, And it's an interesting thing to say ethics have changed, because I always think of ethics as being sort of more imprinted, encoded in us humans. Do they change? Uh, Really, everything, in a sense, changes historically. Some ethical precepts remain over time, but other things can evolve. So in my father's era, for example, a good doctor, an ethical doctor, made all of the decisions for his patients, and most of the doctors were men. And that was what you were supposed to do. Of course, in our era, patients have autonomy and patients are now empowered to make decisions. And that's what an ethical doctor does, tells their, helps their patients make decisions. So two very good types of medicine, two ethical types of medicine, but a change over time. When you're watching the film, you get the sense that there has been points in time where it was considered, I guess, okay uh, to separate twins or separate multiples. Was it ethical then is it ethical now? Well, I'll start with the easier question, which is now. <laughs> of course not. Um, the The world of adoption has changed dramatically since the 1950s and 60s, and the way adoptions get done are much more transparent. And I don't think anyone in the world of adoption could conceive of separating twins and not telling people. So that would be seen as wholly unethical at this point. It's more complicated when you look back. Certainly, when we look back and judge that, we ask ourselves, how could this have happened? It seems so completely wrong. But at the time, at least, there were certain people active in the world of adoption who felt that there were possible advantages to separating twins. Um, And they were powerful enough and strong enough to get some of this enacted at a particular adoption agency in New York. And then the research study that emerged from that came out of that adoption agency. So if you go to the first part of that, that there were legitimate reasons to separate in the first place, aside from scientific study, 
What were some of those reasons? Uh, among the most powerful was something that actually emanated from Freudian reasoning. And, and if you think about New York City in the post-World War II era, Freudian thought was very dominant in psychiatry. Among the uh, tenets of that was the importance of the mother-child bonding, uh, that uh, the relationship between a mom and a child was crucial, that the attention of a mother was the most important thing for raising a healthy, uh, mentally stable child. Um, so in an interesting way, when the possibility came up of taking two twins and giving them each a mother, a different mother that could dote on them and pay attention to them, that for this small group of people seemed appealing. The the studies were sort of predicated in this idea that there was a veil of secrecy that oftentimes the the adoptive parents didn't even know that their that their child was not a singleton uh, that they in fact were a multiple or regardless of whether you thought that maybe there's very good reasons to do this for the family maybe there's even real reasons to do this scientifically the way that it was conducted seemed unethical can you separate the process from the intent so the gray it's a gray line here um, you have an idea you want to go ahead and research it it seems like a reasonable if controversial topic to research but once you start using deception uh, and misleading types of statements it becomes much more ethically questionable does it does it then throw into question any results that may come from the study. I guess if someone has acted in a deceptive way or unethical way with regard to how they conducted the study, uh, can the results still be legitimate? Uh, theoretically, I, I think you could do a deceptive study and get uh, results that are reasonable to follow. Uh, one example would be the Tuskegee experiment, the famous syphilis experiment, where they learned uh, by deceiving men who had syphilis and not telling them that people who had syphilis died more quickly than those who didn't. So that was reasonable data. But for the most part, I think studies that are carried out that are ethically questionable from a methodological standpoint often turn out to have data that isn't valuable uh, as well. And it's worth pointing out, and no one knows better than you, that with Tuskegee, there was a point then where a treatment was known to be effective, penicillin, and if, for various reasons, which still I think uh, are not entirely clear, some say lack of funding, some say just really poor behavior, there were people who did not get treatment that could have helped them or even saved them. Even if you look at the beginning of the Tuskegee study and say, well, there weren't good treatments available, we want to study this disease, we think the disease is different in African Americans, we want to learn something. Once more deception became involved, in other words, there was penicillin, they still weren't telling the guys they had syphilis, they were purposely keeping penicillin away, that's when the study becomes even more unethical. Some would argue it was unethical from the start, but I think everybody would agree that the more manipulation and deception that went along in the Tuskegee study, similarly to the adoption study, makes it more problematic. One of the most striking examples, I think, of morally corrupt medicine um, that people think of is is the practice of scientists in in Nazi Germany. Um, for our younger listeners, can you can you give us a little bit of a primer on what was happening there with Joseph Mengele and the Nazis? What happened in the Nazi concentration camps, uh, we, we term a horror of human experimentation, but almost giving it any title that sounds like other things we do, it, it can be inappropriate. Um, 
the experiments that were done there without consent on complete victims who couldn't say no were among the most horrible things that have ever happened, I think, in history. Uh, patients were cut open while alive. They were frozen practically to death. Um, twin studies were done that uh, completely manipulated people. Oftentimes, after someone participated in an experiment, they were killed all to purportedly get scientific knowledge that the Nazis wanted to use to help their soldiers uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the battle. Uh, what was particularly horrifying about this, when we look back at this, is the role that physicians played in this because all doctors, whether German or from anywhere else, sign up to do no harm. That's in the Hippocratic Oath. And yet here were doctors in the service of the state actively harming their patients, their subjects, uh, in a willful and horrible manner. So it, it's one of the most horrible blots on the history of medicine. You say with Tuskegee, perhaps there were some lessons learned about the, the natural history of untreated syphilis, for example. Could you possibly say the same here? Was there, I mean, I, I don't even know how to ask this, uh, you know, in, in, in a way that makes sense, but, but was there any value at all, anything useful that came out of those experiments, uh, and keep and, you know, and it goes without saying these are obviously sadistic, unethical, anti-Semitic individuals conducting these studies. Can anything that they've done actually be credible? I, I think almost not. I, I think people going back over these experiments, as we talked about before, not only were these experiments horribly unethical, they weren't particularly well thought out experiments. Mm -hmm. There's one sort of famous example that has gotten some discussion in the world of ethics, which was the freezing experiments, the hypothermia experiments. And some people have argued that there's some useful data there um, because no one could ever conceive of doing a hypothermia experiment where you basically freeze people practically to death and rewarm them. That could never happen again. And some have argued maybe the data is okay and maybe it's actually a tribute to the people who were tortured by it to get some good use out of this data. But for the most part, I think uh, ethicists agree that the notion of using this data is very uh, uncomfortable and, and most of it is probably useless. You mentioned the Tuskegee experiment and, you know, which poor African-American men were infected with syphilis without their knowledge. I mean, it's another horrifying example of what we're talking about. I want to play a clip of President Bill Clinton in 1997, more than 60 years after the experiment started. The American president finally acknowledging and apologizing. So today, America does remember the hundreds of men used in research without their knowledge and consent. We remember them and their family members, men who were poor and African-American, without resources and with few alternatives, they believed they had found hope when they were offered free medical care by the United States Public Health Service. They were betrayed. They were betrayed. What, what, do, you, what do you think of that? Um, apologies are important here. They don't rectify the past, but they acknowledge that unethical and inappropriate and, in this case, racist things occurred, that people were taken advantage of, and that... The government, in this case, the United States Public Health Service, was actively involved in this experiment and actively deceiving the people who were involved. And while an apology only gets you so far, it's still an important thing to happen. From your standpoint as a bioethicist, what is the legacy of Tuskegee? 
Well, there's a, a couple ways to look at this. One is it's an important historical milestone, and you go back and, like any historical event, you go back to Tuskegee, and you don't just roll your eyes and say, oh, my God, those people were so unethical then, we would never do that now. You try to put yourself in the shoes of the people who came up with the study. How could they have conceived? And these were... Uh, I mean, it might be awkward to say sort of the good guys. These were people who actually cared about African-American health. They cared about syphilis. They were not rich Park Avenue doctors. How did they get so misguided and try to learn from that type of lesson? The actual legacy today, some argue, and there's some debate about this, that African-Americans up until today remain nervous and anxious about participating in any sort of research at major medical centers because of the legacy of Tuskegee, that they're afraid that doctors are still going to do experimentation on them without consent. I will tell you that as a practicing doctor, on many occasions, the topic of Tuskegee has come up, and I've talked about it with my patients. They have things like institutional review boards now, IRBs, uh, that's another layer of protection. That, that, that is another one of the legacies, I think, of, of things like Tuskegee. May, maybe not directly, but, you know, clearly that these safeguards need to be put in place. You know, I would say almost institutional review boards is almost a direct <laughs> extension of Tuskegee because the hearings that occurred in Congress came right after Tuskegee and that led to institutional review boards. Look, all you can do is really try to reassure people that research now is done in a much more careful ethical manner with uh, as good informed consent as we can get. Are there things that you worry about right now that we are ethically challenged when it comes to scientific inquiry? The things that 30, 40, 50 years from now we'll look back and say, boy, I can't believe we did that. Kind of like we're saying about the twin study from the past. Absolutely. So one of the uh, tenets really of teaching history and ethics, I think, is some is to learn some humility. Um, so the Physicians who were doing these experiments in the post-World War II era, Tuskegee-type experiments and, and others that we could mention, thought they were doing the right thing. They thought they were pushing scientific knowledge forward. They thought they weren't really harming patients. They were doing what they had to do. And they didn't get a lot of criticism from their peers. Um, I think now we've done a better job of putting safeguards in and trying to be uh, more ethical about it. But absolutely. I mean, over time, people are going to look back and say, why did doctors tolerate the following? Why was this sort of research done? It's not a reason to not do research. Um, but the, the point, I think, is about a humility and understanding how things change over time. You, and, and I think it's, you know, it's obviously what you've spent your professional life doing. Thank God there's people like you, bioethicists, to help us think these things through because it's maybe not always clear at the time, I think is what you're saying. Just just winding it up with these brothers, one of the through lines of the film was they really want to see the study. They really want to see the results of that study. Should they, do you think? Um, that's, that's a complicated issue. Uh, you know, I assume that there are... Um, issues not only of research ethics here, but also of confidentiality involved and, and legal issues, I, I assume, with the people who control the records. Um, so I'm sure that that's a, a factor that's playing in here as well. Um, I'm not sure, for example, that certain twins should be able to see the results of other twins. Um, but I, I do think the overall 
effort should be to make as much of the information available as possible um, in an ethical way that respects confidentiality. Dr. Lerner, such a pleasure. Always learn something hearing from you. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Up next, I'm speaking with the award-winning journalist Lawrence Wright, one of the first people to tell the story of three identical strangers to the world. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We're digging into the incredible story behind the CNN film, Three Identical Strangers. The story first received national attention in 1995, when Lawrence Wright unraveled the tale of three identical brothers brought back together in his New Yorker piece called Double Mystery. And he joins us now. Thank you. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. I got to say, before we talk about the twins, you you just have an incredibly diverse writing portfolio. You've covered everything from Al-Qaeda to, to, uh, to Scientology, obviously, the twins. What drives you to cover these different topics? Oh, years ago, Sanjay, I made a resolution that I would only do things that were really important or really fun. So uh, <laughs> I find, like right now, I'm working on a musical. So uh, <laughs> it, 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 it's those, that's the axis on which I make my decisions, and curiosity leads me where I want to go. Well, you make a real impact. I mean, looming tower, going clear for people who are interested in these topics of Al-Qaeda or Scientology. They know these titles, and you're the one who brought them to us. So thank you for that. As a, as a reader, when you think about this particular story and your New Yorker piece, Double Mystery, how did you even begin to, to unravel what happened here? It seems so big. Well, I was very interested uh, from the beginning about with this sort of you know the idea of twins and what they tell us about human nature, and uh, so that whole story began with me going to the editor at the New Yorker at the time, Tina Brown, and I, I just wanted to write about uh, what twins tell us, uh, the mystery of uh, you know how much of our character and our intelligence is is caused by the environment and how much by genes. So I just dived into the world of twin studies, and there are millions of them. 
And uh, it was in the course of that that I came across this one study that uh, was referred to some unpublished material. Uh, and that's that's where I really got into this, and that's where you know this whole story for me really began. When when people think about these age old questions, nature, nurture, free will, you know the impact of the environment. You obviously uh, you know went on to write a book about this. You wrote this New Yorker piece. Did you have a notion about this yourself going into it, or were you sort of you know just a, a blank slate when it came to this issue? No, I wouldn't say that I was a blank slate, although I'm not politically strongly aligned one side or the other. But, you know, as a writer, I like to think that, you know, it's it's events in our environment that causes uh, our, you know, our character to form. And because it's such a, you know, a literary trope <laughs> that, you know, this happened and this happened and that that is why, you know, <laughs> someone turns into the person that he is. And so I, I would say more, more from a literary than a political <laughs> perspective, I had an investment uh, in, uh, you know, in this subject. But uh, studying twins uh, will you know, demoralize you if that's your uh, perspective, because, uh, you know, twin studies have quite a different commentary on the development of human personality. What, what, have, you, what have you taken away from it when you say that it, it will demoralize or discourage someone? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, twins, ever since, you know, Sir Francis Galton started the whole twin study thing in the middle of the 19th century, they've been used uh, as a political football uh, to justify, you know, one stance or another. Mm-hmm. And uh, for Galton, it was the British class system. You know, he, he did a study on, uh, you know, British colonialists and black Africans to determine that, uh, the, that the British had a higher rate of intelligence, and he used twins to support that. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, the 20th century was, you know, the early part of the 20th century, in some ways you could say, was divided between the environmentalists uh, who, I guess, were best personified politically by the uh, Soviets, by the communists, and and the uh, geneticists who were, you know, embodied in the fascists. And, and so, you know, just think of all the grief that was caused because of these two different understandings of what causes human nature. And twin studies were a tremendous battlefield. Uh, you know, it, it, the question of whether, you know, society can make changes in the environment that will, you know, help uh, advance a person intellectually, uh, or uh, is it pointless to do that? Those are questions that still uh, affect our policies today. You know, and at the heart of this, you know, we're not talking about in laboratory experiments involving beakers and petri dishes. We're inv- these are studies that are, involve human beings and oftentimes babies, you know, separated at birth, um, no disclosure, uh, duplicitous behavior by the researchers, you know, really no, no transparency. Um, w- was, was, it a, was it a sense of outrage for you? I mean, when you got into this and started to uncover this, how did you feel about it? What was your sentiment? What were they thinking when they you know, designed this? Because you you can't imagine separating, uh, in this case, Jewish identical twins in New York City and expecting that they would never run into each other. It was nuts, and uh, and 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 there may still be you know uh, twin pairs out there that haven't discovered themselves, but most of them were 
bound to find each other. It's just it's just too hard for that kind of secret to be held. Yeah, I think that that was that was a lot of it. This was seemed to be you know prominent people within their field at the time that maybe felt that they you know were well within their right to do this. Do you think that the brothers um, should see the results of this study? Do you think they should see their own data at a minimum? Oh, yeah. In that category, I would say yes. I think that they should be allowed to see their own data. I think that's true for all of the twins and and the triplets. Uh, And, you know, we might, you know, I I also think that scholars should have some access to this. Uh, You know, I mean, whatever you think about the ethics of it, it was an amazingly well-designed study. And, you know, you would want to know, if you're interested in this subject, what did they learn? And um, and there's a subsidiary question to that is, why did they hide the results? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to hide the study from the twins, but you could still have published a study drawing on the data. You ask why were the results of the study not released, kept hidden? <laughs> you know, sometimes if people conduct studies where the results aren't what they expected, wanted, maybe even. Uh, maybe it's easy to bury those results. Do you, do you think that anyone should be held legally responsible for what happened in the study? Oh, I don't know. I, you know, the people that designed the study are dead. Um, the, yeah, I, when I talked to Neubauer, I, he, he implied that he was going to release the study. Right. And he was just waiting for a, a few years. And I thought at the time, I said, uh, until the twins all become 21. And he sort of laughed I don't know what that laugh meant, but, you know, it, 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 it was coy about it. And uh, I think he was evasive in putting me off in retrospect. You said this once, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, if you think of life as a river, genes are the current in the river. Genes are the mm-hmm. current in the river. But we do have the will to switch direction if we choose. And that's more the, the nurture part of it and our own free will, if you will. Fair? Is that, is that well, a good description? Well, environment, yeah, yes, and I was going to say environment also has a has a, a a role to play. I mean, in a broad sense, if you are, you know, alcoholism to some extent is has a genetic component. But if you're an Amish person or a Saudi Arabian, you're probably not going to exercise that. Uh, you know, there, there's clearly a role in which environment has a, a has a, a way of shaping who we are. But the, one of the shocking things to me about twin studies that is also corroborated by adoption studies is how little the family has to do with, uh, with the, you know, the environmental portion of, of our personalities. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's essentially negligible. I hate to use that word, but uh, twin studies and adoption studies show that, you know, the for instance, the, the, the longer you live in an adopted family, the more like your biological parents you become. And uh, it's, it's, the, it's the unshared uh, environment, which is the, you know, your experiences, education, your friends, the accidents that happen to you in life and so on, that are far more formative. And um, that, you know, you asked about how I... Uh, you know, whether my views have changed since writing that, 
when I wrote that, it was 25 years ago, and now, you know, I'm a grandparent. I've been through <laughs> having my own children. It was in some ways liberating to think that I wasn't going to harm my kids' outcome as long as I, you know, provide them a safe enough uh, environment. But uh, on the other hand, I decided pretty much I was going to set that aside, uh, the, the idea that I wasn't making a difference, uh, because I did. I, I feel very strongly that, you know, my, my children, for either for the, the environment they were raised in or the genes, the genes legacy that we gave them, uh, have been affected by our parenting. And uh, so I, my mind's at ease on that. Fascinating discussion, Lawrence Wright. I've really been looking forward to this. Thanks for joining us. It's been my pleasure, Sanjay. On our next episode of Three Identical Strangers, The Science Behind the Story, we're going to talk to the parents of twins about why the business behind fertility and multiples is rapidly changing. It's really hard to want something, you know, so badly and for it to elude you. And so we did all sorts of different, you know, I mean, I can take you through IVF and IUI and all that stuff. But ultimately, I was lucky that it ended in um, my twin girls. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And remember, tune in on January 27th at 9 p.m. to watch the film only on CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.